Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Wilka Carvalho. Wilka is a PhD student at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. Wilka, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I am excited for this conversation and to learn a little bit about what you are up to and your research. Before we do that, let's start by having you share a little bit about your background and how you came to study machine learning. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's slightly different, um, though many people have followed a similar background. I actually began in physics uh, because I was really interested in studying the brain. And so I was curious about like biophysical mechanisms, but I, and I wanted to study it in a very like mathematical modeling kind of way. Um, and around my senior year uh, of college, I learned about reinforcement learning. Um, and I saw this video of this uh, reinforcement learning agent playing Atari. And I was just super like mesmerized by it. And at the same time, there was like neuroscientists that talked about neural networks. And so I decided I want to say neural networks. And so I actually switched into uh, computer science for a, a master's. Um, and there I was my first stint in a machine learning lab. Um, and I learned about unsupervised learning and reinforcement learning. And this whole, like, I'm actually still pursuing uh, studying the brain in my own kind of way. Like I, I kind of want to do theories for like, what are the, what are the basic ingredients for intelligence? Um, and I, I kind of believe that the right avenue is through machine learning right now. Nice, nice. And do you see that as a path to getting to AGI or, you know, are you focused on kind of the AI side of things or um, are you focused on the biology side of things? No. So that's a great question. I think what I learned by, I I did lots of research in like uh, neuroscience labs or like computational neuroscience labs. And people will say that you can reduce intelligence to like biophysical things. I don't think that's true. I think that the ultimate reduction of like intelligence and behavior is in algorithms and models. Um, and so that's what I'm, I'm on like the search for what are the right algorithms and models. And I care about human level intelligence, but I think that ends up manifesting as artificial general intelligence, which is why I'm in a computer science PhD program. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. I was just reading something. I forget who wrote it or, or what it was, but it seemed to, the, the general premise was that while the human body is, you know, unbelievably complicated, far beyond our ability to, to comprehend it, mm-hmm. um, it is ultimately an algorithm. I, and- <laughs> I agree so much. I've been saying, I agree so much. Yes. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I, I'm sure there are people who disagree with that. Um, <laughs> yeah. but it's the beginning of an interesting thought exercise, mm-hmm. and it suggests interesting things, uh, if true, yeah. uh, about our you know ultimate ability given sufficient sophistication and computational horsepower and all these things to kind of, I don't know if deterministically is the right word, but mm-hmm. to more definitively understand mm-hmm. Uh, various aspects of the human body and behavior. And then even does that translate to thought as well? Yeah, Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's kind of wild to think about. No, yeah, it is wild. I think it's, I mean, it's true, but I think it's partially because we we don't really, we're not really exposed to like 
computer science when we're younger. Um, I think like for things like biology, I don't know about like your courses and I took biology last in high school, but it was mm-hmm. largely like descriptive. Like we had like, we like were described how cells were related and like this does that and connects yep. to this. But like looking at back at it retrospectively, like it seems like those are just algorithms, right? Like, there's an algorithm that relates protein and RNA. There are algorithms that for like how babies form from zygotes. So I think it's just like, we're not at a stage in our education where we like have that be a first class citizen for thinking about the world. Maybe in like 50 years, it'll be really intuitive. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know? Interesting. Interesting. Uh, and so you, you kind of transition into a machine learning background and, mm-hmm. um, you know, within that broad kind of banner of, of ML and, and this interest in uh, intelligence broadly, how do you define kind of your focus area and research interests? That is such a good question. Yeah, I think <laughs> that's I really always a great question for someone that's in a PhD program. <laughs> <laughs> I think I spent the the first uh, you know two years. I'm still thinking about that. Yeah, so I think I've discovered kind of um, what that is. So, but I, I found it by by focusing on a on a, on a particular kind of problem. So um, I've got two machine learning advisors, one that focuses on uh, representation learning, his name is Hong Lok Lee, and another that focuses on reinforcement learning, uh, Satinder Singh. And the two of them work together uh, often and co-advise me. And when I first joined, you know, I was looking for, or like the three of us were trying to find what I could could study. And what the, what we came to was, can we develop an agent that can perform just tasks in home domains and what kinds of challenges are manifest in those kind of domains. It's actually the setting. By home domains, you mean a home, a house. Uh-huh, exactly. Right. Because like things like, like cooking and cleaning tasks, while very trivial for humans, it's not clear how trivial they might be for robots. Even when you remove the difficulty of, of, of control and manipulation, just reasoning about objects learning to use them together, et cetera, that there seems to be many challenges there. And I think what we've come to is um, we're interested in, in developing agents that have kind of the human skills that can enable them to function in home environments like kitchens, but not just function, but also learn generalizable knowledge and skills. So yeah, this long story short, I think I'm ending, I'm focusing on how do we build AI that learns generalizable knowledge and skills in environments that are very similar to what humans act in, like a, like a home or a kitchen. Mm. And when you, when you think about generalizable knowledge and skills uh, and, and thinking about your description of one of your advisor's research areas, is that the, the representation part coming in and then the home environment is the reinforcement learning part coming in? To an extent. That's not, it's not a bad delineation. Yeah, I mean, I've, I have a large focus on representation learning. I would say that I, I focus on, on there and how do you learn representations that enable generalization? Um, and that definitely has been inspired by Hung Luck. I think Satinder is also interested in this because like, I think his goal is AGI and, and actually both of their goals are AGI. It's great. They, they talk about it a lot. I think we, we all kind of have the consensus that like artificial general intelligence will be able to readily apply its knowledge and behaviors to new situations. Right. And so how do we kind of like carve out small ways that we can make progress towards that? That's almost definitional, right? 
Uh, I mean, if you're going to talk about an artificial general intelligence, you yeah. should be able to do that at least. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, but it's so hard. <laughs> <laughs> but clearly, we're nowhere near there. Cool. And so one of your uh, recent works, actually, what we'll spend our time talking about today is kind of mm-hmm. squarely in this direction. It's a paper called Roma. Uh, yeah, what does Roma stand for? Uh, Roma is a relational object model learning agent. Um, so Roma, silent L. And um, what is, you know, tell us more about it. What is object model learning and, mm-hmm. um, you know, what's the, what are the, the chief goals of the, this work? Oh, no. Yeah, for sure. So I think um, this work was really beginning to address the challenge of what we call object interaction tasks. And so there's, there's a really interesting domain known as Thor um, that is high fidelity. So it's very like, realistic looking. It's 3D. Um, it has a thing known as like partial observability. So, you know, we as humans, when we look somewhere, we don't see everything that's that's around us. It's like we kind of have like a partially observable view of the environment. Mm-hmm. This has that too. And so in this work, we begin to try to get an agent that can do object interaction tasks kind of from scratch, uh, where scratch means without pre-training things, without giving it like knowledge about objects or about states and just like it explores interactions and learns to do things. And uh, are we talking about any particular types of things or? Um, Mainly cooking, like, like things that, like, like minor chores you'd find in a, in a kitchen. Um, so things like filling a cup with water or getting a plate with an apple and then putting both of those on a table um, where you have to kind of relate multiple objects. So the reason it's called relational object model learning agent is that we realize that if you break up the world into objects and you have some sort of inductive bias for relating them, that makes it easier to reason about what object interactions you should do, right? So if I have to fill a cup with water, I want to relate the cup to the sink so I can put the cup in the sink and so I can fill it. Um, And the way that we learn to represent things is by like learning by learning a basically a, what's known as a model. So like we predict how objects will change and that helps us like learn to represent objects so we can relate them and then do the tasks. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times we, we think of reinforcement learning, these pictures pop in your head of either gameplay where you've got an agent exploring some large environment uh, and kind of building a, you know, a map so to speak, uh, of the environment, um, trying to achieve some goal or, mm-hmm. you know, these other kind of simulations where it's just, um, embodied, mm-hmm. you know, agents trying to figure out how to use their bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here the central focus is about the relationship between the agent and the, and these objects and the relationship between the objects and mm-hmm. one another. And so, you mentioned building in some kind of inclination for them to explore these, you know, these objects. Like, what is that? Um, you know, how all do you do that and, and what's involved in that? Yeah, more so an inclination to like, re- like explicitly relate objects when deciding interactions. So you can imagine, um, let's say that I'm cooking something at, at the stove, mm-hmm. right? Once I bring the materials to the stove, I should relate the stove and those materials as I decide my actions. So let's say I'm like going to boil some, boil a potato or boil, just boil water. I have like, once the pot with water is on the stove, then I know, oh, I should turn on the stove knob. 
But when I'm deciding actions on a stove knob, I'm actually relating it to the pot and the water because I want that to boil. And so we built in uh, an inclination for doing that. For as it decides the stove knob, it actually looks at the pot and the water and it's like, oh, I, now is the right time. Hmm. Are, are you, how are you in this world or in this task? How are you expressing the goals for the, the agent? Yeah, that's a good question. So this, I think right now it's fairly rudimentary. Um, and so we actually specify tasks by just um, a single reward. And so like and with the agent only learns to do one task at a time and that task has a rewarding uh, state. And so like once the boil the water is boiled, then the agent gets a reward of plus one. And it has to figure out without any other signal, okay, what did I just do for the last 200 time steps that led me to get a reward of plus one? Mm. But it sounds like then you're training the agent on a task by task basis. Is that yes. the case? Yeah. Okay. I had, I had a picture based on the, the first part of our conversation of you throwing this agent into the environment with these objects and, you know, maybe having some kind of cost function or, or some mm-hmm. function based on novelty, like it did mm-hmm. something and water boiled and, Oh, that's cool. Let's do more yeah. of that. Um, but it sounds like, uh, that's not actually what you're doing. You're trying to teach it to do individual things. And mm-hmm. then, are you looking at all at the like the transferability of these skills that you're teaching the agent to say like composite skills or mm-hmm. something like that? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I want to note that um, prior to our work, no work had was able to learn these tasks from scratch, um, and so we were the first ones to figure out. Okay, an environment has you know fifty, seventy objects. The, the like real houses are like fairly complex or cluttered. How do you have an agent learn to do tasks um, in that setting, um, especially quickly? And so we try to do it, you know, with not like you could think not too many ex- samples of experience from not too many hours. So, but because of all of because of these reasons, we um, only focused on single task. But we are we plan to kind of like now that we have something working, now that we've kind of figured out some of the key pieces that enable just like basic interaction tasks, how do we go to composite tasks? How do we go to learning eight things at once? How do we go to learning things that are really long and complex, like making breakfast? Um, that's like what I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've been able to, to solve this task uh, that hadn't been done before. What were all of the various elements of your approach that made it successful where others hadn't? Is it just that no one's tried before or yeah. um, um, did you do a unique combination of things that uh, allowed you to, to solve it? You know, I think that, uh, I don't know if it's super unique. I think I'm, maybe I'm lucky in that I, there was a few key pieces that have become prominent recently that really helped. Uh, we, we really relied on two things for our solution. Um, the first, so I don't know if you've heard of transformers. Like, I think they're, pr- they're like fairly popular, mm-hmm. but transformers rely on on a thing known as self attention. And so we actually do attention on the objects based on the objects. And doing kind of like attention on the objects was a key component for getting uh, the agent to be able to relate objects. Like, as it's going to choose actions for the stove knob, it's got to attend to the pot, for example. And then the second thing... What does that specifically mean in this context, attending to the pot? Yeah, that's a good question. So basically, you have an embedding of 
the stove knob and you do some projection of that and then you have embeddings of all the other objects and you project those and then you look at um, like their dot product or something. And basically you're going to attend to the objects where you have the highest dot product or the, the highest similarity. Dot product is basically like cosine similarity or like how mm -hmm. similar two things are. So you could think that you're going to learn to project um, the stove knob into some space where you can easily figure out what are the other objects that are very relevant. And you use that to select out the object. Okay. And so these embeddings, are they trained kind of end-to-end -end as part of your process? So you've, yeah. you've got this environment, you've got lots of objects in it that are represented by these learned embeddings that form a kind of a space of the, the objects that are in the environment. And then you um, use the this attention or these mm -hmm. dot products to figure out what are the objects that relate to one another. Yes. And that relation isn't some a priori kind of defined thing. It's, nope. you know, the agent does something, other things change as a result of the thing that it did. And it starts to learn that, mm -hmm. um, you know, these things are related. Yep. And one thing you mentioned about like the embeddings for objects. Mm -hmm. So that's actually where the object model comes in. So the agent, like the default option is that the agent only learns to represent objects from the reward signal at the end, like from that plus one at the very end of the episode. But that that rarely happens. And so it's going to do a lot of things and not learn about them. And so yeah, attribution errors and all that kind of stuff. How does how does the agent learn to to attribute positive reward to the act to the individual things it's done in a long sequence of yeah yeah no exactly and and even beyond that before that how does it learn to even just represent things how does it learn to differentiate a pot from a pan or a tomato from a pear and so what we realize is that you can learn to do, you can you can learn to represent an object by a its visual features and b what you can do with it and so we had the idea we can just learn a we can learn a model that predicts given an object and an interaction with it, how will it change? And by doing that, you actually learn to differentiate all the objects and to represent what state they're in, what state they're not in, uh, et cetera. And then that is used to relate objects correctly. Mm -hmm. And the second part of that, you, you've got this two-dimensional, for lack of, for using, a, yeah. using an overloaded word, you've got these two elements of, uh, the agent's interaction with an object, it can get a sense of its physical appearance and it can do stuff to it. Exactly. It. Uh, are those manipulations, are they a finite, you know, set of uh, manipulations? Meaning, you know, is the, you know, a knob is kind of defined in your world as something that can turn rotationally and a cup is something that, you know, can be manipulated in a three-dimensional space, and is it? No, it's actually it's more coarse than that. So, okay. um, interactions are fairly atomic in that, for example, a sink is either filled with water or it's not filled with water, mm. or a stove burner is either on or off. Um, right. But you can still have things like they still look visually interesting and complex, and then there's a large space of combinations of how these things can interact. Okay. Yeah, but the whole, like, you know, if the agent had to pick up the cup and, like, rotate it, and, like, I think that would be so challenging. That's, yeah, that would, that's, like, current research by yeah. talented people. 
this is current research by talented people. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, again, going back to this kind of, you know, the, the, the social media videos we see of like reinforcement learning where you've got mm. these agents manipulating things. That's yeah. not necessarily what you're doing here. It's more, um, you know, it's more an agent making kind of decisions in a, mm -hmm. a coarse grain space, mm -hmm. trying to learn the relationship again between these objects um, and achieve some, it sounds like it's a binary reward, reward at the end of the yeah, activity. Basically. And, that was kind of a choice we made in the beginning. You know, we could focus on like the control part of things, but then I think we'd have, um, we wouldn't be able to do kind of complex objects or really complex, like what's known as like long horizon tasks, right? You can like learn, imagine having to learn to make breakfast, the whole mm -hmm. like picking up a pot, bringing it to the stove, filling it, et cetera. But with, with the, all the control, I think that's like, you know, probably like five PhD theses. <laughs> At least. Um, and so you have been able to train these agents to perform these, again, kind of coarse grain abstract mm -hmm. tasks mm -hmm. by, you started saying, you know, using a couple of tools. The first one was attention and we kind of went down into that tangent. Mm -hmm. What was the second piece? Well, I so I actually mentioned it. It's learning a model. Like that's the pieces mm -hmm. are... You learn to represent objects by learning a model for them, and then you learn to relate objects with attention. And then oh, those that's all you need to uh, learn to do tasks. At least okay. like, you know, uh, n like we don't do super complex tasks. Mm -hmm. um, there's more needed to, to go further. But for what we have, which um, it's, you know, things like that relate multiple objects, where they interact with each other, where you like the stove heats the, the pot, which heats, which heats the potato. And so you have to like understand that we uh, were able to tackle tasks like that. Okay. And so when you say learning a model, the, the model that we're talking about here is the embedding space of the objects. Yes and As no. As opposed to a predictive model for a particular object that says, if you do thing X, thing Y is likely to happen. No, it's both. So it's both. You can imagine that what's being learned is um, you're you're you are a learning an embedding space, mm -hmm. but you're you're also learning to structure that space and learning how to map from one point to another. And so you see an object, it maps some point in space, and then given interaction, you learn where else does it go, um, mm -hmm. and then you and then you structure that space so that like things are uh, put together, kind of clustered together like different object states, et cetera. And that's, that's all done with um, what's known as contrastive learning. Um, I said earlier that I'm lucky. Contrastive learning has recently become popular um, for all your listeners. I highly recommend looking into it. Um, it's very simple, but very effective for representation learning. So elaborate on contrastive learning and uh, mm -hmm. what it's trying to do. I mean, at a, at a high level, it's extremely simple. You have uh, what's known as a query. Um, and then you have, or what people actually use, the terminology they use is, is an anchor. So I'll, I'll give the example of learning um, a forward model. So let's say that the task I want to do is turning on a stove burner. Let's just say turning on a stove burner. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, I'll, I, as my anchor, I would choose the stove burner. Then I might choose the embedding of the stove burner when it's, when it's hot or when it's on as my, what's called as a positive Right, so off will be the anchor, on will be the positive. 
And then I would choose just random other embeddings, at least as a, as a first try, as, as negatives. And what it ends up doing is it learns to structure the space so that the on and the off embeddings of the SoBurner are nearby or they're, or they're pulled together. And all the other ones, which are presumably wrong or not that, are just are pushed away. Hmm. So the idea there is that in learning an embedding space, it could learn relationships among any number of properties of the thing, but contrastive learning kind of seeds the, the learning to be focused on a particular thing that you want it to be focused on. Uh, yeah, great point. Like the way you choose your anchor and your positive is based on whatever you care about. And so yeah. you want to have things be nearby based on the condition you care about. Yeah, that was really good. So what were some of the biggest challenges you ran into in this work and, and getting it all to come together? That's a good question. Um, I think the biggest challenge that I came into for this work is that it's it's kind of different from, it's not a standard setting. So for example, I, I wasn't trying to improve a classifier on ImageNet or have <laughs> like an agent that does better on Atari games. Um, this domain is kind of like untested or like it, there hasn't been a lot of work there because it's, it's challenging and the, the kinds of tasks we were, we were working on haven't been thoroughly studied. Um, and as a first year student who was new to reinforcement learning, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and it's taken a long time to like, kind of like scope out, like I didn't, I had to also scope out the problem here. Like it wasn't like a well-defined problem. And so getting a sense of what does it mean for a task to be an object interaction task? What are the important things that make tasks challenging? Is it the number of objects? Is it, so one, one example is for a long time, I thought that if you could learn to categorize objects correctly, then you would be able to do many of these tasks because we mainly care about which categories are we, are we dealing with? But that hypothesis was wrong. Categories alone are not sufficient. What's more important is um, being able to infer an object state. Is it on or off? Is it open or closed? Because if you just have categories, it's actually not enough information for an agent to learn. And so, you know, I because this hasn't really been studied, I had to like come across all these problems. <laughs> mm -hmm. and by categorizing the objects, meaning what? What level of granularity? Meaning like something that controls something else or versus something that is a you know repository for something versus you know, like yeah i think i i had a simpler way of thinking of category i thought just like you know the labels that you might get out of like some object recognition algorithm okay so versus exactly versus, got yeah it, got, it, got it got it okay Our reinforcement learning is historically a, a challenge to kind of train and, and get to converge. Did you run into those kinds of issues? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I'm so I, I think I'm, I'm extremely grateful to have um, super smart, hardworking, compassionate, <laughs> lab mates like my lab mates have given me so much time answering my questions i think if it wasn't for like if for that i would have i would i would still be trying to get a basic task to work like picking up a cup or something mm. yeah but it is very challenging any particular things that you ran into that were tough to overcome yeah that's a good question um 
I think reinforcement learning is is interesting because the the training scheme is is very different from what you would find in supervised learning or even unsupervised learning. Like I did unsupervised learning for my masters, um, and like that has its own challenges. But in in reinforcement learning, you you collect your own data, right? And so you have to set up a framework where an agent collects its own data and then uses that to train itself. And doing that with a with a new environment that's like unta- like no like there's no public repository that uses my the environment that I used for reinforcement reinforcement learning. So I had to I had to build that in, and that was super challenging. Um, especially having a solution that's kind of like general for like any algorithm I want to try. Yeah. It's super challenging. And you use, it looks like you use kind of standard, uh, deep Q network, uh, formulation for this. Simple, simple start. Yeah. Uh, you, you, the paper mentions, uh, egocentric reinforcement learning. What's Mm -hmm. that referring to? It's mainly just, um, like the percept, like you get, um, a perception from the agent's eyes, right? So it's like from our ego. Um, Got it. Got it. So uh, imagine a picture that looks like a first-person shooter type ex- video game. but Exactly. A first person. <laughs> I should say first person in a kitchen. Yep. <laughs> nice. Um, we're, tell us about the – like you mentioned that this is something that ha- hadn't been done before. Mm-hmm. Like ultimately what were your – performance metrics um, mm. in terms of what you were trying to do and how, how well did you assess the, the the effort? Yeah, great question. So yeah, it was a little bit challenging to, to measure things because of um, this kind of being different. One thing like prior work that, that's worked in this domain, they kind of assumed knowledge of all the objects. Um, and so they would have like their quote unquote action space based on like objects and interactions on them. But we, we didn't want to assume anything. So we had to kind of like in it, slightly innovate there um, and de- design, a, design our own model. Um, and so actually that ended up playing a role in how we evaluated things. So the model, the, the, like the model we used to interact with the environment without knowledge of the objects there was we call it a relational object DQN. And basically it works off of object images and it learns to choose actions based off of images of objects. And so we actually, we lower bounded our performance with that, right? Because our, our full agent is that plus model learning. And so we removed that and the lower bound was just the relational object DQN. And then we upper bounded performance with, uh, by having that, that same model with ground truth uh, object information, right? So the idea is the attention enables us to relate objects um, and we're going to use a model to learn to represent objects. Okay, well, we can give it like Oracle information about objects, like ground truth information, and then we can see how close do we get to that. And we found that, um, so we, we looked at, we basically compared success rate. Um, we compared the area under success rate. Um, and so we get a percent, like every model, like what percent of the success rate area did that model, that, that like model get? And we were able to get, um, greater than or equal to 80%, um, seven out of eight times, um, which was, uh, I think, pretty decent. Um, the, next, uh, the, the next best model could only do so three out of uh, eight times. Meaning 80% of the time, your model 
could eventually figure out how to turn on the stove or boil water or something. No, like no. The, the yeah, sorry. That was the – so we're looking for a success rate that goes above uh, 90%, right? And But you could think that the the how quickly that success rate um, increases, mm-hmm. that can give you a sense of the sample efficiency. So in this paper, we're focusing on mm-hmm. more sample-efficient learning. If the success rate rises quickly, it learns more quickly. And so our our upper bound was the success rate area of the ground truth information model, right? That one ideally shoots up the quick, the, the, the most quickly and therefore has the highest area. And so then we compared um, the areas of other agents to that area. Got it. Got it. So, and so the 70, 80% you were talking about was the percentage of the um, success rate area yeah. of the ground truth model. Yeah. But, you know, saying it, I think more simply, basically we said, if you get some percent of that, you've done well. And we were able to do well seven out of eight times. Um, and other models were not able to um, more than three times. Right. Right. And to help folks visualize this, the, the idea is that the um, you've got a curve that curves up and then plateaus yep. for a while. And you want it to uh, curve up sooner because that means it's learned quicker. Exactly. Uh, and if it, curves up sooner then it has more area exactly uh, underneath it and you so you want to your mo- your the models that you train were able to kind of curve up within well curve up such that they uh that area was 80 percent of your ideal which was again with the the model where they you had the you gave it some uh ground truth information exactly 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 and so that uh, metric is focused on the sample efficiency. I'm, I'm trying to relate that to the the success or lack of success of the agents themselves. Yeah, uh, good point. Do in achieving a, a particular task. Is yeah, that something you paid attention to, or no, we did uh, all. So for all the tasks, um, the ground truth uh, information agent was able to get. 95% or higher success rate. Okay. So the the tasks were such that the the agents with the ground truth could uh, do it. So you were measuring relative to that. The yeah, you know, well how like how long did it take to train the model in these various scenarios? Yeah. So anyone who does reinforcement learning with another <laughs> environment no like they're probably used to like training that takes two, three, four hours. But the environment that I worked in, it's interesting because it has a physics simulator. Um, so it's got it's got 3D objects and it's got like physics simulations and that leads training to take about half a day for um, only like, so for context, other people will train, will collect millions of samples of experience, like experience in the environment, I think in like a day or half a day, but I collect 500,000 plus training in uh, in half a day. So I collect far fewer samples in more time. And so I needed to have a solution that was sample efficient, which was a big part of the challenge here. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Where do you see it going? What's, what's next? And is this a, a line of research that you uh, continue to, to push on and kind oh, of definitely. stepping stone onto other things or? No, I'm, I, I'm, so I think the solution that we have is, I think it's a good start, but it's far from complete. We cannot handle partial observability, for example. Like if I have to turn on, if the agent has to turn on a coffee machine and also turn on a microwave, 
once it go once it does one, it forgets about the other. And so accounting for that is is a challenge. Um, right now, it can't do tasks that are really long horizon for a similar reason. Long horizon means that they have many steps, right? So like if I have to make coffee and make toast and you know put them together for breakfast, that's too long um, to learn. Um, and so we're exploring a few directions, but I think, yeah, right now we're we're trying to tackle how do we get an agent to have a good notion of its history um, and one that scales, uh, yeah, to really long tasks with many objects. And do you have a hunch as to how you might accomplish that or is there I do. <laughs> uh, literature out there for, yeah, for doing that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there are there are different approaches for this kind of task. I don't think that there's literature on. So as a, you know, as a reminder, in the robotics community, it's hard to do these kinds of tasks because great strides have been made in control, but working with deformable objects for like extended periods, I think, is still challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this is this is actually, I think, it's one of the only and maybe the first, at least. 3D environment that has these kinds of tasks. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think there's, there's really prior work that's tried to do this. Um, I think we're kind of lucky um, that this came out and we saw it and now we're pursuing these kind of like tasks. Yeah, I think that there, there are object-centric RNNs, which I think um, are relevant to this. And so I think, yeah, this, the, the solution is, is not fully clear, but I think, you know, you want some, sort of, some form of history with an RNN um, but you want something that I think breaks up the world a little bit. Mm-hmm. And the model that you're using here, did I see somewhere that it was a kind of a simple feed forward yep. kind of model? Honestly, I strive to have simple solutions. And so <laughs> I, it might look complex. Especially but when you're dealing with the kind of training complexity. you Exactly. Have no, exactly. Like for this kind of complexity, having a complex solution is, it, it, it's just, it's so hard. Um, well, and so then is gonna, is going to, I know, I know I'm, <laughs> I'm not looking forward to this at all. Um, no, I am. I'm really excited. I think that, um, history is important and for, for everyone who's interested in reinforcement learning, um, one of the first things that people learn about is this notion of state state mm-hmm. is kind of like a knowledge of the environment that enables you to do whatever you need. And when you are in, envi- when you are in an environment that's full of objects, I think it's still unclear what is a good definition of state. What's a good representation of state? And so I think that's the direction that um, anyone interested should think about and that I'm thinking about. Meaning not just the state of all the objects in the environment? Well, imagine, in like, if we want a solution that actually is going to be insightful to the real world, the real world has dozens, hundreds, thousands of objects. It's not tractable to keep track of all of them, right? And we as humans, we definitely don't. Um, we, we probably keep track of a small number. Um, and then, and then that shifts based on a variety of factors, but yeah, like, yeah, tracking objects makes sense, but like, which ones do you track? How do you choose Mm it? (laughs) Attention. It's all you Uh, need. (laughs) I do think that's part of the answer. Yeah. (laughs) It's all you need. Awesome. Oh, that's really good. Awesome. Well, Wilka, thanks so much for taking the time to share a bit about what you're up to. Very cool stuff. Yeah. Thank you for all the great questions and for helping to talk me through those explanations. And some of it was uh, challenging. Yeah, it was really fun. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Bye. 
All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.